For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and love, we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, sorry, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks be to God who put, it, put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches uh, for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending them with them our brother who has often proved us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of this, his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honour to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Archaea were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. 
For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Good morning, everyone. It's a bit of a long passage to have open, but it's a helpful one to think about generosity from. Um, Though it is a long passage, and we will get to it, it's a topical sermon, so we'll move around other things too, but the one verse to have in the back of your mind is chapter 8 and verse 7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. That's the verse to be pondering as we look at this topic. And when you do that, you'll notice in the sermon outline, I've misquoted it in the last point there and said 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, which is another very good verse, but that's not the one I attended. If um, this sermon sounds all very new to you, that may be because you're a newcomer to church. And if that's the case, I look forward to catching up, um, grab some morning tea and head over out thereafter. If the sermon sounds very familiar, well, I hope it does, because you may have heard it before if you've been around. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about church and money and generosity, Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts. We pray that your gospel would be changing the way that we think about our life here on earth and all the riches you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our third topical sermon, thinking about church, who we are. We've looked at that, what we do. That was last week. And today we're um, thinking about what it means for a Bible-teaching church that wants to grow followers of Jesus, what it means for us when we think about church and money. Um, Growing in generosity, growing to be more generous, it's a natural thing for Christians to be doing. It's part of being a Christian to grow in being generous. And so the goal this morning is not by any means to guilt trip anybody, but more just to hit reset and help us think together about how we can be generous and how we can be growing in generosity. And let's start by thinking about what generosity is not. So if you think about what generosity isn't, it's not being possessive. That's not generous. It's not being protective. It's not being unwilling to share. Those things, they're not generous at all. Let me share a concrete example of someone being ungenerous. So you can kind of have that in the back of your mind as you think about what generosity is not. If you've ever been to Rocks Riverside Park, it's a fantastic open space that is open for anybody to visit. We've watched over the last 15 years as it's grown more and more green. It's amazing how you see the same regulars come through making use of this common shared space. There's, I think, five shelters around the park. Um, You can't book most of them. There's only two, I think, that you can book. They're shared space. Um, They've got concrete tables and chairs around and a barbecue not far away. You can mix and mingle with anyone and everybody. The idea is it's common shared space. The council, yes, they do take bookings for some, but there's one in particular that's close to the playground, close to the water, and you cannot book that one. It's got a double table. It's a big shelter, shared space. Trick is, each Saturday morning, park run happens. Park run's a fairly early start for most people, but hundreds of people congregate around that particular big shelter, and then within an hour, they're gone. They're all dissipated, gone. One week we arrived for park run and there was a tent at the end of this shared space, this shelter. 
So someone had camped illegally overnight. So they'd be there in time to reserve space for their kids' party, which turns out wasn't going to be till about 9.30. They'd roped off a section of the shelter, put all their belongings in among the tables there to make it very clear we've claimed this space, it's now ours. And as the parkrun people began to gather, you could see this person getting more and more agitated and annoyed, basically pacing the boundary that they had created of their space. When little children even came up to the rope, they'd pull the rope down and make it hard for the kids to get through. And f as people were arriving for parkrun, you're looking at things, it's a bit stupid. But the more this went on, the more we realised, actually, this is quite sinister. This is yucky. This is horrible. That person's behaviour, yeah, it's the opposite of generosity. The shelter is not theirs to possess. People um, share that space. You come and you go. When you've gone, the next park user comes in and makes use of that space. His behaviour, though, when you look at it with honesty, you think, actually, it's a distilled down version of what can happen in all of our hearts, isn't it? We hang on tight to our possessions. We claim things as our own. We build fences around them. We become protective and guarded and mean. We lose sight of the fact that we're a bit like park users. When we die, we don't take any of this with us. The next park user comes in and enjoys it too. Let your mind think about generosity and that pretty horrible example of what generosity is not. Think about generosity as we um, think about church and money and giving. And in particular, ponder how the gospel of Jesus shows God's generosity to us and think about how that ought to motivate our generosity. Um, when it comes to managing church finances, I've used this illustration before, so word of warning. When it comes to managing church finances, we've talked about last week, you know, what we do as a church, and you need money to do the things we do as a church. And so how do you manage church finances? One option would be to have a sub subscription or a, a membership like you do for the local gym. So you sign up each year. We know what it's going to cost to run church, and we just, just distribute it around. So if you want to be part of Kenmore Presbyterian Church, here's your uh, membership plan, and everyone coughs up. Um, you could structure your membership plan so that you cover your costs, or if you're a shrewd evangelist, you, you, you structure it so that you just fall a little bit short. So there's incentive to grow the membership. Invite a friend, you get free membership for a year, this sort of thing, anything. To... We could do church finances that way, couldn't we? In fact, you could do even more. You could have um, levels of membership. So if you could afford a more expensive membership, then you get the better seats in the hall. Um, you can have elite membership where you get a personal trainer. You get to have lunch with an ordained minister after church or something like that. Pragmatically speaking, this would be simple. The committee of management's job would be done. Nice way to organise your church finances, except that it is completely at odds with what we want to teach and model as Christians, isn't it? We want each of us to be growing in gospel generosity, not paying our dues. So scrap the membership idea. We won't raise that with the Committee of Management when they meet tomorrow night. Um, there's another way which I think we can keep things nice and simple, and that is um, to enforce tithing. So 10%. That means 10% of what you earn goes straight to church. And we could have the, um, the, the forms go out this week and you could sign up. Um, church finances, again, they'll become very simple. In fact, for every 10 full-time workers, you get another staff worker for church. That works, doesn't it? I mean... If you're really smart with numbers, you'll say, actually, it's only nine because the, the paid person should be giving to church as well. They're 10%. And 
and, and the magical thing is that these, these paid staff will be paid at the average wage of full-time workers in the congregation. It just, it's, it's seamless. Um, Ten works better, though, because PCQ charges a tax. It would be simple in many ways, but in other ways, it's not. Because what happens when someone reneges on their 10%? What do you do? You send around the debt collectors? It starts to get really messy. A simple tithing method of raising money for church, it doesn't necessarily simplify things, but then some will say, well, tithing's biblical. And it, well, it is. You find tithing in the Bible. So you find it in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament Israelites gave a tenth of everything. In fact, when the land was allocated to the 12 tribes, the Levites got nothing because they were the ones who lived off the 10% that the other tribes gave. Tithing, yes, it was part of the way God designed the law for his people under the Old Covenant. In fact, tithing is there in the Old Testament before the law. So Abraham came 430 years before the law. Paul will tell you that. Um, Abraham in Genesis 14, he gave a tenth of the spoils of battle to Melchizedek. It's like a sign of respect to Melchizedek. So the idea of tithing, yes, it's there in the Bible. But when you think about it, the Old Testament Jew, they didn't just tithe. Over and above their tithe, they gave free will offerings. There were other offerings for various occasions, and they also, at particular intervals, cancelled all debts. So in other words, they were giving significantly more than 10%. They were giving it away. So enforcing a tithe, yeah, it doesn't necessarily simplify things for us. It doesn't even model what they did in the Old Covenant strictly. And then there's the issue of where does your 10% start and finish? So if you give 10% to Andrew and AFES, does that mean you give nothing to church? You, just, you get this kind of nonsense thing going on. But perhaps the worst or most significant danger with enforcing tithing is the problem of legalism. The problem with legalism, by that I mean, instead of being gener generous with everything we have, we just limit ourselves to 10%. That's not a great thing. Or we pat ourselves on the back for achieving our 10% target. We look around at others and think, well, they're obviously not. And we start judging other people. That sort of negative legalism starts to creep in. But I'd say the most important um, thing to factor in when you think about church and money is there is no command in the New Testament to do what they did under the Old Covenant. There is no command in the New Testament to tithe. The New Testament does talk about money a whole lot, so here's some places where the New Testament talks about money. I mean, 1 Timothy is the, the letter from Paul to Timothy. You see money cropping up a number of times. If you work backwards through 1 Timothy, you come to chapter 6, where Tim, uh, Paul warns against the love of money. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, instead, we're told that godliness with contentment is great gain. So here's Paul writing to Timothy, teaching him about money and wealth and being content. In chapter 5, you've got another example there where um, there's a reminder to provide for your family. It's in the context of caring for widows, but the principle is there, you provide for your family. Or still in chapter 5, there's, it says that elders who teach are worthy of double honour. It goes on to say that workers deserve their wages, the principle being um, it's right to provide for those who teach us in the Lord. What I'm saying is the New Testament says plenty about money. It doesn't mention tithing. Um, 1 Thessalonians warns against being idle. Nice and simple principle there. Don't work, don't eat, it's there. Um, Galatians 6 tells us to share all good things with those who instruct us. James 2 um, teaches us that our faith should be seen in practical ways, like providing for those who are in need. 
Jesus teaches about money. You know, not storing up wealth in this life, not serving two masters. But you'll notice not once does it say we must tithe. Whereas in the Old Testament, the overriding principle, I think, would have been tithing, in the New Testament, I think the overriding principle is generosity. Gospel-shaped generosity is the thing. Um, Generosity, it can be a whole lot more messy when it comes to trying to sort out a church budget because how do you know how generous people are going to be? A whole lot more complicated than compulsory tithing or membership principles. But understood correctly... Generosity can be a whole lot simpler too. Gospel-shaped generosity extends beyond what we do as a church, beyond the finances we need to run church, to other gospel ministry, to other people, um, to our own efforts of being generous with those around us. Gospel-shaped generosity extends beyond your wealth and to your life, giving of yourself and your time and your energy. When you think about giving of ourselves, giving of ourselves can be more costly than giving of our wealth at times. So there's many points where the New Testament talks about money and generosity, but where we're going to spend our time for the next couple of minutes is in the passage that was read. And yes, it's a long passage. We'll be pretty short and it's more of a flyover. But we're flying over. We're looking at what does this passage teach us about generosity as Christians? Um, We've already got in the back of our mind. We're thinking about what generosity is and what it isn't. We've got that park user as the example of what it isn't. But let's see what uh, 2 Corinthians can show us about Christian generosity. When you look at the passage, you would have noticed, we're thinking context for a little bit, um, he's not actually talking about funds for a church. He's not talking about a church budget. There's a collection that's mentioned. But this is a collection, as you piece it together, it's a collection for the Jewish Christians over in Jerusalem who are in a time of need. So he's talking to the Corinthian church about a collection to send to the Christians in Jerusalem. Um, So if you look at um, 2 Corinthians 7, where we pick up the passage from verse 13, you get this feel for the relationship between the apostle and the church. So partway through the verse, he says, in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. There's this kind of connection between them. There's genuine relationship between Paul and these people that he's writing to. Then you jump ahead to, um, that's a big jump, to chapter 8, verse 10. He says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter, this matter of a collection. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So it sounds like this collection is something that's been ongoing and building, and it's very much voluntary. There's no compulsion. It's a voluntary gift. Jump down further, chapter 9, verse 1. Um, see their willingness again. So chapter 9, verse 1, there is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them up to action. So the, the, the Corinthians, they're so fired up to be a part of this generous gift that their enthusiasm has rubbed off on the Macedonians, and now they want to do the same thing. So this is not a church budget. This is a generous gift to fellow Christians. And the collection that it's referring to, I believe, is for the, Jew, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And there could be you know, theological reasons for Paul to want to see this happen, this, this way of expressing 
the unity in Christ, predominantly Gentile Christians supporting predominantly Jewish Christians, this unity in Christ. could be that, but I think the overriding concern for Paul is there in chapter 8, verse 7, his desire to see this group of Christians in Corinth excelling in generosity. So verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I think that's why he's addressing this topic. He wants them to be extremely generous and growing in generosity because it's a sign of being children of God, understanding the gospel. So there's your context. There's kind of the big overview. Now let's zoom in and see what we can say about generosity in the passage. Um, Come back again to 8 verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So the Corinthians inspired the Macedonians to give and you look at the Macedonians giving and it's costly generosity. It's inspirational generosity, but it's costly. Or if you look down in verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. This exemplary and costly generosity of the Macedonians, they didn't take from one to give to the other in verse 5, they do both, give to the Lord and then give to this purpose. Um, Costly generosity, when you think about it, generosity has to cost you, doesn't it? Otherwise it's not really generous. If you're giving something away that's extra, that's not the same thing. Generosity is when you give up something that you would otherwise have used. That's where the generosity factor kicks in, doesn't it? And here the Macedonians, they're giving almost beyond their ability. Second thing to notice in the passage as you think about generosity is the way the gospel shapes generosity. So look at 8 verse 8. So again he says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And then verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. you kind of got to read it through a few times. Let it sink in, that verse, verse 9. Jesus impoverished himself. It came at a cost to him. He gave it all. He gave up everything to become a human and then gave up his life as well. He died to take the punishment for us. Why does Paul mention this? Well, because the truth of the gospel ought to motivate us to have that same kind of heart, that generous nature, that gospel-shaped generosity. So a couple of lessons you can learn about generosity already in the passage. One is the sacrificial nature of it when you look at the Macedonians, and then the way the gospel ought to shape our generosity just in that passage there. There's more to consider. If you go back to um, chapter 8, verses 11 to 12, you'll see there there's the expectation that your generosity corresponds to your ability to give so verse 11 now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means for if the willingness is there the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have there's generosity according to means Um, giving according to means is not saying give what you don't need already been there but it means that some people 
will have a larger amount to draw on as they be generous. That's, that's all it means. So you don't compare each other. We're different. So as you look at the passage, you've got costly generosity, you've got gospel-motivated generosity, you've got generosity according to means. There's other things to notice in the passage. One thing that jumps out at me is the brazen way that Paul um, talks about the Macedonians being encouraged by the Corinthians, so therefore the Corinthians should follow through with their commitment. This inhibition, this, this lack of concern about talking about money and sharing and generosity because he wants to see these Corinthians grow in generosity. There's nothing wrong with encouraging generosity. It's part of growing as a Christian. Um, There are other principles to do with money that you can glean from this passage. For example, if you look at verses 18 and 19, the way they appoint people to carry the money, we've got to be above board in the way we handle money and so on. There's other things to learn, but the big one, as you look across 2 Corinthians 7 to 9, the big one is Christian generosity and what that looks like sacrificial generosity, gospel-shaped generosity, generosity that reflects our means and generosity that inspires others to be generous as well. So we've been thinking about generosity this morning. That's because that is the principle in the New Testament when you think about church and money. Here at KPC, we don't do the membership fee thing. We don't enforce it 10%, but we want to excel in gospel-motivated generosity. Generosity that we see not just in Uh, meeting a church budget, but in supporting other gospel ministry, in caring for others beyond our congregation and in caring for each other in times of needs. Remembering that quite often giving of yourself shows greater generosity than just giving of your wealth. So when it comes to church and money, our church finances, it's extremely ordered. I mean, we're Presbyterian after all. And the way we do things probably reflects nothing like the church in Corinth. But the basic gist of it is around November each year, Uh, We call a congregational meeting which the Committee of Management reports to and says, here's a budget. Can we accept and work on that budget? And then through the course of the year, we remind you at various points of where we're up to with the giving. It's on the back of the notices and so on. Um, In March each year, we have a congregational meeting. That same Committee of Management reports back to the congregation that elected them before they're dissolved and we elect a new Committee of Management. And the bulk of their report is to say, here's the church finances that have been audited by a third party. Check it out make sure it's all above board. Then you elect the Committee of Management for the year to come. It's very ordered. Um, When we employ someone as a church, we do so as the congregation agrees that they can afford it, can commit to doing it. Very ordered. Um, The language we try to encourage when we think about money at churches, we want people in their giving towards church to be considered and consistent and generous and to be given beyond our church. So um, on, on the back table up there, there's a little booklet, plan your giving. Think it through, start of the year, think through your giving to church and to other gospel ministry. If you can't, if that's run out of print, there's this little card here that has a link to the webpage. It's got the, the little booklet there as well, as well as the bank details. We don't pass the plate here at church. We don't put people in an awkward position. Um, we don't give people the opportunity of doing the trick we learned as kids where you flick the bottom of the collection plate so it sounds like you put something in. None of that. We don't handle cash, in fact, but we encourage those who are regular to be considered consistent and generous, and we encourage those who are visitors to be our visitors. As we think about the church budget and money and church, though, the big picture is we want to be growing in generosity. 
We want to be a church that understands the gospel, a church that excels in everything, including the grace of giving. And so come back one last time to 8 verse 7 and then verse 9. 8 verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. For you know, in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I thought I'd um, close by praying, but I'll use someone else's words. So I'll pray a slightly modified version of the general thanksgiving, um, and then we'll sing together again. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all mankind. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your enormous love in the redemption of the world by your Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we ask you, give us that due sense of all your mercies, that our hearts may be always thankful and that we would show your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.